pray. Father, we um, thank you so much, Lord, for uh, the new birth. We thank you for new life, Lord. And um, you're, you're, as, as we discover more and more of who you are, and as we um, comprehend more of your kingdom and more of your ways, Lord, we become more amazed and more um, humbled, Lord, to, 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 to realize the vastness of who you are. And, and Father, we, this morning, have, have set aside this time, Lord, as men. We desire, Lord, to lay ourselves low in the ground. We, we uh, uncover, Lord, everything that we are. We realize that we're uh, so frail. We realize that we're weak. We're fleshly. We're, in many ways, filthy, Lord, except for the blood of Christ. Uh, we're completely unrighteous and, and unworthy. But uh, this morning we, we come to you by faith. We come by faith in the name and, and by the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, and we ask you, Father, that you would make us your sons, not just in name and not just in position, but, uh, Lord, in our very nature, that you would change us on the inside and make us like Christ, that you conform us into his image, that you would give to us the abundance of life, Lord, that he demonstrated for us in his earthly life, that you would make us be selfless, that you would make us to take up our cross, that you would make us to be um, uh, driven to do your will above our own, that you would help us, Lord, to have love, Lord, for uh, for our wives and for our neighbors and for our children, and, uh, and that that would just be the very characteristic of what we are. So we ask, Lord, this morning that as we open up the Word of God and read, Lord, the testimony of what you have done and we ask that you would let it let it penetrate, Lord. Let it get into the very roots of who we are and become a part of us. We pray that your ways would become our ways, and that your truth would be our guide. That your uh, your light, your word would be our light. And, uh, and so we just ask these things this morning, Lord. And we pray if there's anything in us, Lord, this morning that you want to put your finger on, that you want to uh, touch and change or cut out of our hearts, Lord. We pray that you would do it. That we would uh, benefit, Lord, from your surgical scalpel. And so we pray these things this morning, Lord. We thank you. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill us, Lord, to hear. Uh, give us discernment and wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Genesis chapter 19, a chapter that is, um, by and large, really not about Abraham uh, so much, though it, it, it has everything to do with his life and his story. Uh, the only picture of him in it, we'll see for just a few verses when we get to verse 27, um, and, and really it, it's, it, it only serves as a contrast. And so what we, uh, what we see here in, in chapter 19 is really what happens to Abram's nephew, Lot. And uh, for, for you and I, the New Testament Christian, what this serves as is, is a snapshot, it's a picture. So you see two men that on the outside very much looked the same. They, they both were Christians, they were both saved, uh, that we're going to meet both of them in heaven. There, there's no question as to their redemption. Uh, but when we look at their life and what took place on the inside, and then also what came out of their life as the byproduct of what was on the inside, the, the outcome is completely different. So uh, the Holy Spirit lays this out before us so that we would be warned um, and that we would see that uh, the choices that we make make a difference in this life. Though God is sovereign, though our salvation uh, is in His hand, all of those things are His. Uh, what we do with the stewardship of our of our lives uh, makes a difference. And so we see Lot this morning. So chapter 19. 
it says that there came then two angels to Sodom at even or evening, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot seeing them rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And so really the, the stage is set and the scene laid out for us uh, right here at, at the beginning of the chapter. You see, first of all, uh, that the two angels, and, and most likely, though we're not told with absolute specific um, words, but most likely these are the two angels that had been with God in the last chapter that came to the to Hebron or Mamre where Abraham was uh, dwelling and, and when God stayed behind and talked with Abram uh, these two angels continue and so probably the same day because it tells us now that it's at the evening so uh, and, and there is a time frame to all of this so if you pay attention as we go through the chapter it's going to tell us at each juncture uh, the time of day that it is and it's important I think for us to, to observe that these things happen very rapidly that uh, the time that passes between um, God's initial visitation of Abraham and the destruction of Sodom uh, happens really within a 48-hour span. You know, so, so when God says to Abram, like he did in the last chapter, and he says, I'm going to go see what's going on in Sodom, and, and I'm going to judge accordingly, that judgment is swift. And there's no, uh, they don't put it into the, the courts of heaven, and it has to go through the bureaucracy of attorneys and the ACLU, and is this really right? And, you know, God sees what's going on, and he, he executes this quickly, you know. And um, let it serve for us as an understanding that when God intervenes in this world for judgment, it's going to happen quickly. That there's going to be a movement, and it will be successive, and it will be fast. And so it says that the two angels, they come at evening, and then they come to Sodom. And as they come there, the very first thing that they see in the gate of the city, just as they're entering in, is Lot. Now, the gate of the city throughout the Bible in those days uh, always spoke of the government of the city. You know, that's just from Genesis to Revelation, every time you see the gate of the city, that's the place where the elders would gather, it's the place where trials would take place, it's the place where decisions were, were made. Um, everything took place in the gate of the city. It's where the movers and the shakers were. It's where the great men of the city uh, were. And so what we see in this is that Lot, not only at this point in his life, dwells in Sodom, but that he's a person of prominence in Sodom, that he has a position in Sodom of leadership. And if you follow the progression of Lot's relationship with Sodom, it's an interesting one, because when it started off, it says that he first just <coughs> looked towards Sodom. He just looked in that direction. There was no allegiance. He wasn't in it. He just looked towards it. And then it says, just a few verses later from that, it says that he pitched his tent towards Sodom. So that is that he aimed his life in that direction. So it started with a glance, but then his life came into alignment with that glance, and now his affections began to move that direction. Then the third thing that it says that Lot dwelt in Sodom, or he just lived there, and now we see that he's got a position of leadership. He's in the gate of Sodom, that he's, he's there. Understand that where you set your eyes, if that does not, you know, change with the promptings of the Lord, that ultimately it will be the direction of your life, and you'll find yourself rooted in something that at one point you were just glancing at casually and from a distance, you know. And so we see Lot now integrated with wickedness. And that's not a place a child of God ever wants to be. 
where you belong to God, but yet you have your roots planted in something that God is about to destroy because of its wickedness. Uh, it's a warning for us as we see it. And so he's in the gate of Sodom, but now he sees them, and he rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And it's an indication that he recognized right away that there was something about these visitors that was not uh, common. He saw the spiritual behind the physical uh, presence of these two beings, and he knew that there was something spiritual that was going on in the midst of this. And so a very clear picture of Lot, just given in this one verse, you know, a man who was saved, he had some sense of spiritual sensitivity, he was familiar with the things of God, but yet we see him rooted in the things of the world and in things that are wicked uh, in a very real and deep way. And so he says in verse 2, he says, Behold now, my lords, lowercase l, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house. You guys, you're going to stay with me tonight. You don't want to book a room at the Sodom Marriott, you know, or, uh, you know, at a, one of the local bed and breakfasts. You certainly don't want to go to uh, one of the um, spas <laughs> of the city, <laughs> you know. He's gonna, you're going to stay at my house tonight. And then he says, and tarry all night and wash your feet, and then you shall rise up early and go on your ways. <laughs> so let's just make this real quick. You guys come in, don't look at anything, don't talk to anyone, don't eat at the restaurant, I'll feed you, don't stay in the hotels, you come into my house, shut the door, and in the morning you can get up before anyone else in the city wakes up and we'll get you out of here. He, he, he doesn't want these people to know uh, where he lives, the, the, the nature of it, and he certainly doesn't want them to be exposed to anything in it. So what it tells us is that Lot is absolutely aware of the spiritual um, quality of the place that he is living. He knows that where he's living is not the best place for him to be living. He knows that the behavior of those whom he's joined himself with is not the kind of behavior that a child of God should be in fellowship with at all. And he knows it to the point where he's embarrassed when representatives from God come to see the lifestyle that he's living. And so he says, you, you guys just go, you stay with me. But they said, nay, no. But we will abide in the street all night. And you can imagine what the... Uh, um, I don't... Uh, no! Verse 3. It says that he pressed upon them greatly. You know? So he says, no, 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 no. I couldn't have it. I mean, it would. Be, what kind of a host would I be as a representative of the city if I, if I didn't have you into my house and show you all the hospitality that I can give to you? And it says that they then obliged. It says that they turned in unto him, and they entered into his house. Now this uh, fascinates me here because... If you just kind of look, take a look at, at, at who we're dealing with in this, we're dealing with two very high-ranking angels. We don't know their names. We don't know their position, what they are. You know, we read about seraphim and uh, cherubim and, and different, you know, rankings, archangel and whatnot we read about in the scripture. Here we just see two, but we know that they're high-ranking because they were walking with God himself. Uh, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ, communing with him. And these two angels are on a mission from God to observe 
and report concerning what's going on within the city of Sodom. Now you have Lot. Lot is a Christian. And not only, not just a Christian, he's, he's a very low-ranking Christian in the sense of the way that he's living his life. He's living on the very low end of things. We would call him, at best, a carnal Christian. Not spiritually minded at all, living very much for the world and after the things of the flesh. But what we see is we see two high-ranking angels giving heed to a very low-ranking Christian. And that interests me, to think about that. That, that. that they have a mission from God, but yet Lot begs them to come in, and they do it. They, they listen, in a sense, they yield to fallen man. Now, the Bible teaches that fallen man outranks angels. Okay? We have been made, for a time, a little lower than the angels. It says that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7. But yet, in God's order of things, we're going to judge angels, the Bible also tells us. So we are a higher ranking thing. However, the interesting thing is, we are, if you would, two completely separate branches of the military. And so if you can kind of picture it like this, is that we are generals in the army, and angels are lieutenants in the navy. So we're higher ranking than them, but we're, they're not subservient to us. They're in a different branch. You know, they, we both submit to the same president, that is God. You know, he's the Lord. He's the Lord of angels, he's the Lord of us. But angels, though we're out, we outrank them, they don't obey us. They obey God, even though they're a lower rank than us. But I find it interesting here that they give heed to Lot and they're going to do it twice. Two times in this chapter, Lot's going to demand of them. And these guys are going to concede to what Lot says. And I find that very fascinating, very interesting. The Bible says that angels are, what, they, what they're made to be, is servant spirits, ministering spirits. And God's purpose for making them is that they might minister unto the heirs of salvation. That's us. And so God has made them for our service. But they don't submit to us. We don't call on them. We don't pray to them. We talk to God. He then dispatches them to do his will. And so they, uh, they oblige, they come, they turn in unto him, they enter into his house, and he made them a feast, and he did break unle bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. But before they lay down, and so they eat their, their evening meal, and uh, they fellowship a little bit. <coughs> I wonder what that conversation was like. <laughs> it says, but before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed or surrounded the house around, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. Now, you get the idea, you know, in your mind, if you read it quickly, that there's just a couple, or that this is the extreme fringes of the wicked people of Sodom that are coming. You know, maybe there's a dozen uh, people there that are outside the door, and maybe some onlookers or something. But if you look at this, notice what it says. It says, all the people of Sodom. The old and the young, all the men from every quarter, every section of the city, every, you know, District 109, <laughs> District 214, the whole entire city gets word that two very stout-looking men <laughs> have come into the city and that they have become guests at Lot's house. And so they come, and verse 5, it says that they called unto Lot, and they said unto him, Where are the men which came in to thee this night, bring them out unto us, that we may know them. 
The idea there, when you read that, especially in the King James, is that they want to have sexual relations with these men. Now, when we come to this verse, we, we come to the classic definition, or, or, or at least our understanding of what we would call the sin of Sodom, you know, which is homosexual uh, relationships. We, re, we, we know today, we have the word sodomy, named after this very uh, place and this very sin, you know, sodomites and those uh, different things, all associated with this. Um, and so when we think of Sodom, typically that's, that's, that's where our minds go. Now we saw last week in our study that that wasn't the sin uh, that God indicted Sodom for. The sin of Sodom, according to Ezekiel 16.49, was pride, fullness of bread, idleness of time, and lack of concern for the poor. But the, 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 the application of it for us, and, and where these two things meet, is that where sin finds its culmination is what we're seeing before us right here. It, is that sin that starts with something as simple as pride, that we think, well, what's wrong with pride? Pride is a good thing, isn't it? We're supposed to have self-esteem and self-respect, and we're supposed to stand up for, for, for ourselves. You know, what the pride, is that really, you know, wickedness? We think, well, that's not so bad, you know? Fullness of bread, idleness of time. We don't really think of those things in the context of sin. The Bible in the New Testament talks about the mystery of iniquity. It's a phrase that Paul uses in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He said that the mystery of iniquity is already at work. Only there's something that is restraining it. And what Paul is talking about in that chapter is he's talking about where our world is ultimately headed. That is, the outside fringes of where wickedness ends up. And the process of sin going from eating a piece of fruit that God says don't eat from this fruit and culminating with what we see in the book of Revelation and the, the nature of man in the battle of Armageddon, that's the, that's the mystery of iniquity. It's the process of how sin goes from something seemingly harmless to something that is so insipidly wicked that the whole world just needs to be destroyed because of it. And it's impossible in our finite understanding to see how that process works. But we see it exemplified throughout Scripture, and this is a classic example of it. Because what we see is we see pride, fullness of bread, idleness of time, lack of concern for the poor, finding its end or the fullness of its expression in the men of the city wanting to have their way with two angels who come in. Just complete wickedness, complete blindness. It's a warning to us not to let sin, even to the smallest degree, have dominion over us. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6 that sin shall not have dominion over you. That's, that's both a, a, a command and an empowerment. God doesn't want sin to have power over us. But he's also given us more power than the sin. And so really none of us have an excuse this morning to say, well, I'm in sin and I'm trapped in sin. Because God says, no, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are able to put that out of your life by taking it to the cross and in repentance bringing it to me. But if we choose to say, well, I love my sin, I'll let it go a little bit further and I'll deal with it later, then we're in a very unwise place. And so uh, we see the sin of Sodom now um, in, in this uh, thing. Now, 
Um, Leviticus chapter 18, verses 22 through 25, concerning the sin of homosexuality, because that certainly is an issue that we face today, isn't it? In, in Leviticus 18, verse 22, God says this. He says, you shall not lie with mankind as with womankind. He says, it is an abomination. Neither shall you lie with any beast to defile yourself therewith, that's an animal. Neither shall any woman stand before a beast to lie down thereto, for it is confusion. Defile not yourselves in any of these things, for in all these the nations are defiled, which I cast out before you. And the land is defiled. So when that sin is present, it says that the land is defiled. Therefore, I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it, and the land itself vomits out her inhabitants. And so God, in the, in the Bible, condemns the sin of homosexuality. You say, well, that's in the Old Testament. That's under the law. Is that something that still holds under the New Covenant? Well, in Romans chapter 1, if you wanted to, uh, you could turn, turn there for just a moment. In Romans chapter 1, at the very beginning of Paul's writing to the Roman church, right after his introduction, he just starts right in uh, at the very beginning. And of course, he's writing to the Romans, which was the Sodom of his day, uh, the heart of the Roman Empire. I think um, Gibbons, in his work, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, uh, highlights that 15 out of the last 16 emperors of Rome were homosexual men. But notice what Paul writes to them concerning this in Romans 1, verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And you know, that's always the case when someone says that they don't believe God, or that they, you know, that they, they're too smart or too intellectual to believe in an invisible God. That, that it's always the case that is that they're suppressing the truth. They're, they're ignoring it on purpose. He says, because that which may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him, from the creation of the world, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. In other words, the invisible God is visible to the understanding if you just take a moment and think about creation itself. Even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. In other words, man who says that he doesn't believe in God, even if he never hears the gospel in his life, will be held accountable to his faith based upon his interaction with the things that are made. Creation itself is enough of a witness, God says, that there is a God, even if someone never hears the gospel. That's the answer, by the way. When someone says, what about the guy who lives on the island, who never hears the gospel, how is God going to judge him? That's how he's going to judge him. He's going to judge him according to his conclusions that he comes to concerning creation, and then also how he deals with his own conscience, which is a testimony to righteousness. <clears throat> because, he says without excuse, and it's because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were they thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. 
professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So they changed the, the glory of the invisible eternal God into something that they had created in their own mind. And, and every man has, has two choices. You can either submit yourself to the God who made you in his image, or you can create your own God after your image. It's one or the other. And he says that the multitude of men chose rather to create a God of their own making. Wherefore, now, verse 24, and this is where sin leads. Wherefore, because of this, God also gave them up to uncleanness. Now, when you see that word uncleanness in the Bible, it always speaks of sexual uncleanness. You can do a concordance search on that in the New Testament. The word unclean means to be sexually defiled. And that can be heterosexual or that can be homosexual. He says, he gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And again, you can do that uh, heterosexually or you can do that homosexually. If it's outside of marriage, uh, whether pre-marriage or whether it's adulterous, then you're defiling. If it's in marriage, you can't defile. The Bible says in Hebrews 13 that the marriage bed is undefiled. If you're with your wife... Uh, you, you can't be sexually defiled with your wife. God has removed every uh, way in which that can uh, happen, you know, in marriage. But outside of marriage, uh, it's uncleanness. It's dishonoring your body. And here's why. They changed the truth of God into a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. So do you see the progression? Back up in verse 24, it says he gave them up to uncleanness. That's, that's one thing. Now, it says they took it further, so he gave them up to vile affections. So it went from unclean, which is one thing, to now vile. It's, this is now, it's, getting, it's just getting ugly. And here's what that vile affection is. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, so being a lesbian. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, unfitting. And that's a great argument right there for why it's wrong. It just doesn't make sense. Plugs go into sockets, not into plugs. <laughs> And receiving in themselves that recompense or reward or payment of their error, which was meat. You can circle that. We're not going to expound on it too much. I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that in a couple of minutes. But basically what God is saying is that there are consequences in the body, in the, in the, in the human <coughs> life that gives itself to this, is that there are consequences from God in the body of someone who gives themselves to this sin. They've received in themselves that repayment of their error, which was necessary. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, <clears throat> God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Third time in this chapter where God gave them over. First uncleanness, then vile affections, and now he gave them over to a reprobate mind. Reprobate means completely godless. 
just completely godless, given over to, to absolute and complete wickedness. And you, isn't it interesting that God's the one that owns this? He says, I did it. I made that happen within those people. To do those things which are not convenient, being filled. Now, once you come to that point, this is what else is accompanying it. Being filled. Filled means overflowing, pressed down. It's coming out of your life, out of your pores. You're filled with it. All unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, gossipers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God, and every human being knows that there's a judgment of God, that will come. I knew that there was a judgment of God before I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I can look back now at things that I wrote prior to being saved and they testify against me that in the midst of my profession that I don't believe in a God. I believed fully and knew deep down that there was a God in the judgment. That they which commit such things are worthy of death. Not only do they do the same, but they have pleasure in them that do them. And so Paul paints a very vivid picture of how the sin of homosexuality is the outside end of the mystery of iniquity, or the process of sin uh, within the life. Now, the question that, that someone would have is why? <clears throat> if you divorce yourself from everything that, that we just read for just a moment, and, and you think, okay, well, if this is something that some people prefer, you know, or this is the way that they're, you know, they feel like th that they were made, you know, and, and all the rest, then why does God make this a sin? Because God's the one that sets the standard for what's right and what's wrong. So why, why does God do this? And, and a lot of people have a problem with God on this because they feel that this is simply a preference. In other words, God doesn't like it. And since God doesn't like it, he said it's sin. But I do like it. I, I don't like it. I mean, <laughs> you know, speaking, you know, third person. <laughs> but I do like it. So if I like something that God doesn't like, then naturally I don't like God. Because he doesn't like something that I do. And so we have a conflict now between me and God. And they think that this is just simply a matter of preference. God doesn't prefer it, and so God has the authority to say, this is wrong. And so God's a bigot. He doesn't like something, so he calls us in. Is that why? Is that the reason why homosexuality is an abomination, just because God doesn't like it? Never. God never calls sin, sin, because he doesn't like it. He never says, sin is bad because I don't like it. Rather, God says, I don't like it because it's bad. It's never preference. It's always consequence. There's always reason for God to say it. What is the consequence of it? We read in Romans that it says that they received in themselves the just recompense of their reward. In other words, there is a natural consequence that comes from embracing this sin within the body. If you just do a little bit of digging and, and do a little bit of searching on the health statistics of homosexual men and women, you find some incredibly interesting things. 
you find that the percent chance or the probability of a homosexual person becoming diseased in their body is increased by more than 50% of, of anybody else that just, you know, just a normal heterosexual person. That's a very real consequence of leading that lifestyle. You also find that if you uh, scan the, the full spectrum of those that are convicted of molestation and, and abusing children, what you find is that by, I think it's some overwhelming margin that is committed by homosexual men. That homosexual men are, like, it's, it's, I think it's over 50% of all of that uh, committed by, by that you know, group of people. You look at the lifespan, 8 to 20 years less lifespan than the normal person if you're living in that type of, uh, of a lifestyle. And so there are consequences of that just in the body. God's into life. And God doesn't like to see the destruction of life. Furthermore, there are sociological issues associated with it. There are changes that take place in the brain chemistry of someone who gives themselves over to that lifestyle. Uh, we've seen it. We, you know, we, we kind of like have made stereotypes out of, out of it and all. But there is changes that happen within the makeup of that person. It does something to society. But the greatest reason is this. Here's the biggest reason why God says that it's an abomination and that it's absolutely wrong. Because what homosexuality does is that it perverts what God intended man to be as a representation of his image. Now follow me here. When God made Adam, it says that he made him in the image of God. So he was made just like God, body, soul, and spirit. The way he would think, the way he would move. He was to be a witness or an expression of God. Then, God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. <clears throat> and so what God did is he put Adam into a deep sleep, and it says that he opened up his side, and he took something out of Adam. He took something out of his side, and with that, he formed the woman. Then, in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says that he put them together in marriage, and he called their name, so their is plural, but name is singular. So the two became one. He called their name Adam, or man. That's what Adam means. Adam means man. And so what God is saying here is that when he took something out of the man and made the woman and then put them together in marriage, then it's that, the male and the female combined, unified in marriage, that becomes the expression of the image of God in the world. So marriage between a man and a woman, the masculine and the feminine coming together, is the image of God. Man, male, you and I, are incomplete. We don't possess the full thing. We don't have the femininity. We don't have the sensitivity. We don't have the tenderness in us. It's taken out. We don't have the mothering instinct. We don't have the nurturing. That's not in us. It's taken out. It's given to the female. But God possesses the whole thing. You understand? And so to take a male and a male and put them together and call that marriage is a perversion of the image of God. And that is an abomination. Or to do it with female and female. Because now you're saying God isn't 
what man is, you know, or man isn't, rather, a reflection of the image of God, what he made him to be. That's the biggest reason why it's an abomination, because it perverts who God is. And that's the answer, by the way, and that's what's needed, because people in, the, in these days where that question is right on the forefront of everything, is why is this wrong, and you're a bigot, and the Christians say, that's the reason why, okay? It's not preference. It's because it's a perversion of who God is, the witness that he left for himself within the world. And there's reason there. It's, it's just absolutely reason. So how do we deal with it? In this, in this day and age where the United States is increasingly looking more and more like Sodom and Gomorrah, how do we uh, deal with this subject as it comes up in conversations, as we deal with people that are living in this lifestyle or that struggle with this lifestyle? The answer is we deal with them the same way that we would deal with any other sinner or person that's trapped in sin. We love them unconditionally. The Bible teaches us that we're to love the sin. No, scratch that. Love the sinner. Hate the sin. <laughs> right? We're to love the sinner and hate the sin. We're to care, uh, love, give them love. We're to care for them. We're to respect them. We're to speak the truth to them with reason, not with condemnation. We're to give answers to these things. And we're to constantly keep it in our minds that there is not a single sin. This is true, and it's going to hurt when I say it. There is not one single sin that is possible for a man to commit that you and I are not capable of committing. Every single one of us are capable of going to the extreme of falling into that sin. And that's just true. Whether we say, well, I would never. Don't ever say, I would never. <laughs> Peter said, I would never, didn't he? It's possible for us. So we're to do it. Uh, we're to care for, for them um, and respect them in, in all of this. And so we see that the, these men, <clears throat> we see the condition that they are in. And so... Um, Verse 6, back in Genesis 19. It says, So that Lot, Lot went out then at the door unto them, and he shut the door after him. So Lot leaves the angels inside. <laughs> he kind of comes out, shuts the door. He's like, let's, let's talk. You try reasoning with people that are in this frame of mind. And he said, verse 7, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. There's your key word. Oh boy, does that incite the wrath of someone who thinks what they're doing is okay. Behold now, Lot says, I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do ye to them as it is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. Now, this could be an indication of where Lot's head is at. I mean, I don't know if you, I have two daughters. <laughs> and I just cannot even imagine um, any father, any human being, saying these words to this group of men that are, you know what, I, I got these two guests in my house, but you can't have them. I'll give you my two virgin daughters instead. You can do whatever. I'm going to give Lot the benefit of the doubt here and go out on a limb that that's not really what was his intention uh, in this, and that he wouldn't actually have done that. I believe probably what Lot is doing in this is that he's trying to get these men to realize how wicked it is, exactly what it is that they're trying to do. In that day, uh, a guest in someone's house was esteemed to be family. You know, and, and so what he's saying to these guys is, look, for me to turn these guests over to you would be equivalent to me giving you my two virgin daughters. 
And nobody would do that. He's re trying to reason with them in terms of the wickedness uh, that it is that they're seeking to commit in, in this whole thing. So he says, don't do this wicked thing. Now listen to their response in verse 9. He says, and they said, stand back. And they said again, this one fellow came into sojourn to stay here, and he will needs be a judge? Now will we deal worse with you than with them? And they pressed sore upon the man. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. Even Lot. And they came near to break the door. And so uh, what we find out here in this verse is that Lot was not necessarily liked by the men in the city. Um, he, he is in the gate of Sodom. And, you know, you can begin to think, okay, well, you know, he was right in there with them. But he wasn't preferred by them. They didn't like this man Lot. You say, well, how did he get in, into this position that they have a government job in the city? You know why? Because the whole city was indebted to Lot's uncle. Remember? Remember how Abraham delivered the king of Sodom and all the people and the spoils back, back a few chapters ago? And the king of Sodom even came to Abraham and offered him, you know, hey, you give me all the people, I'll give you all the stuff. Tried to make a covenant with Abraham and allegiance. Abraham said, I'm going to do nothing with you. You go do your thing. But it, out of the whole thing, Lot came out on top because Lot got a job. But the job that Lot had in the gate was not because of Lot. It was because of Abraham. They didn't like him. And now they say, who are you to judge us? And isn't that the response that we get anytime we try to call things what they are? You're judging me. Who are you to judge me? So now the other men intervene. And I, I wonder what it was like to be in the house at this time. If I was one of these angels, I'm like, what? That's... And then, the, the, you know, the one angel is about to open the door, and the other one's like, no, no, wait, wait. Just wait like 10 more seconds. <laughs> you know, that's probably what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> but it says that they, uh, they, they, they uh, opened up the door, they put forth their hand, they pulled Lot into the house to them, and then they shut the door, and they, they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. Now we'll <clears throat> pass over that verse without hearing what it says. Sin has an incredible power to remove from us all sense of reason. These men have been stripped of their ability to see. They cannot see. Think about how valuable the gift of sight is. And these guys are smitten with blindness, but yet they are so inflamed in their lust, and they're so carried about by the passion of their sin, that they can't even realize that they're blinded. And they're going to do what they have to do to satisfy their lust. Sexual sin, whether it be heterosexual or homosexual, is an extremely powerful and dangerous thing. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, flee fornication. Run from it. He says, for every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he that fornicates, that gets involved in sexual sin, is sinning against his very self, his very soul. Flee. Run because it removes your ability to reason and think clearly and see outcomes. And these guys weary themselves even after they've been smitten with blindness and the whole thing. And so the men said unto Lot, uh, these are the two angels now, 
Have you here any besides, son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters, and whatsoever you have in the city, bring them out of this place? For we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now, if Lot was in his right mind, these words would have you know, rang really loudly in his ears. But based on his response, you see that he's just kind of like giving them the old, okay, all right, uh, let me see if I can accommodate that for you. you uh, what can I do, you know? And so it says that Lot went out, now imagine that, he walks out and all these blind guys that are like groping in the darkness, you know, like the city of zombies now like, come here, you know, and, and Lot sneaks through uh, them, he goes out, and it says that he spoke unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters. So he had at least two married daughters alongside the unmarried. And he said, up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. So Lot was living so far into the world that when he tried to do something spiritual in the audience of those that were unsaved, he seemed to be a fool to them. He had absolutely no credibility whatsoever, even with his family, because his lifestyle was so far off from his profession and who it was that he was called to be. This is sad. It's a sad thing when the life of a believer is so corrupted and so worldly and so influenced by worldly things that when they seek to, 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 to make a spiritual stand on something, people laugh at them and say, you? Now you're going you're gonna to tell me? You know? Okay. And these guys just mock. And, and they're lost. These guys are lost in part because of Lot's dual life. Because he was living a dual life. And when the morning arose and the angels hastened Lot, so now morning comes, there's a time, uh, time spot. You can catch, catch the, the progression of events here. Uh, so now the morning comes. It hasn't even been 24 hours since God and the angels met Abraham. That was the heat of the day. That was the middle, middle day yesterday. Now it's morning of the following day. It says, and when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot. So they had to be like, come on. I mean, this is for real. This is serious saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters, which are here, lest you be consumed in the iniquity of the city. You need to get out. This isn't the time to be in Sodom. And while he lingered, you see that? <laughs> so they had to quicken him in. So he's like, all right, oh, now what can I get here? I remember um, growing up, uh, I, I, I was walking through a room um, of family members that were watching uh, a, a movie, I think it was called The Jerk, and uh, it was with Steve Martin, and, and there was this scene, I just remember the scene, it seemed so ridiculous, is that he had to go somewhere, and, and he was going through all the things he wanted to take with him, and he's going through the house, and he's like grabbing the remote control for the TV, and like he's just like, and you can almost see Lot, he's the jerk, <laughs> and he's going around the house going, all right, what do I want to take with me, you know, and he's, he's just, and the angels are like, you need to hurry, and so, while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. Mark that in your mind. That this is just pure. Lot didn't deserve the mercy that God is extending to him in this. And it says that they brought him forth, and they set him outside the city. And so he's brought out. He needs to get out of the city. 
That's the call that God gives to every man, woman, and child in this world today. Come out. We're still in, physically, but in our minds and in the position of our eternal life, we need to be out of this world. In John, 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John writes this, he said, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away with its affections and its lusts. But whoever does the will of God will abide forever. And so there's two things in that verse. There's the world, and then there's the will of God. And what God calls every one of us to is to come out of the world and to come into the will of God. First John, I'm sorry, John chapter 1, verse 12 says, To as many as received him, received Jesus Christ, to them he gave the right to be called the sons of God. And so to come out of Sodom in the, in the, the modern context is to repent of worldliness and to get right with God through Jesus Christ. He is the door out and the door in. Door out of the world and the door in to the life of God. And so Relat is pulled out, he's placed outside the city, and it came to pass that when they had brought them forth abroad, that he said, the angel, escape for your life. Look not behind you. It's important, just one, one small sentence of an angel is going to be very costly to Lot's wife in a moment. He says, don't look behind you, neither stay in all the plain." Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. And Lot said unto them, Oh, not so, my lord. <laughs> this guy uh, likes to argue with God. Anybody relate to that? <laughs> Behold now, thy servant has, if thy servant has found grace in thy sight, and you have, or thy servant has found grace in thy sight, and you have magnified thy mercy, which you have showed unto me in saving my life, and I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. Now, how inconsistent is that? He was just rescued from all evil, <laughs> so that he wouldn't die. And now he thinks, well, if I go there, I'm going to die. Evil's going to befall me. Behold now, he says, reasoning with God, arguing with God. This city is near to flee unto, and it is a little one. This is a little wicked place. It's not a big wicked place like Sodom. Oh, let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. Now, I counted eight times in verses 19 and 20 that Lot uses a personal pronoun. I, me, my. Eight times. I, me, me, my. He has the I, me, mys. I, me, my. I, 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 me, me, me. <laughs> we call it the me monster, right? <laughs> and that's what Lot is. That's what the world produces. That's what a life in the flesh will always produce selfish, selfish, selfish. I, 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 I. Now here's the amazing thing. Look what happens in verse 20, uh, verse 21. And he said unto him, the angel says to Lot, See, I have accepted you concerning this thing also. The angel says, all right. You want the city? You can have the city. Be careful what you pray for, because you just might get it that I will not overthrow this city. So he even lets him know that that city was one that was going to be destroyed. He says, For the which you have spoken, haste thee, escape there, for I cannot do anything till you become thither. Therefore the name of that city was called Zoar. 
The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoan. So now sunrise of that same day. And then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. The idea is not just that there was like a casual glance to see the firework display. But the language is that she looked back longingly. That though she had physically been removed, her heart was still deeply planted in Sodom. And her affections were there. And it says that she became a pillar of salt. Listen, guys. You are going to be the salt of the earth, one way or another. Jesus said you are the salt of the earth. And you're going to be the salt of the earth one way. You can either be the salt of the earth and your life is a testimony of the good things that come from those that follow God. Or your life can be a testimony to the world of the bad things that happen to those that don't. But one way or another, if you've taken the name of Christ, you will be the salt of the earth. She becomes a pillar of salt. And Abraham, now the only reference to Abraham in this chapter is here. And it's for, for contrast. Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. Notice the consistency. Abraham, very steady in his life. Just comes right out to the place where he would meet with God. And it says that he looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Didn't turn into a pillar of salt. There was nothing about looking in that direction that made it. It was all about the heart. He looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld, lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in the which Lot dwelt. Do you see that the connection is in this? Is that the reason why Lot was taken out had uh, its bearing or its root in the prayer of Abraham? It's so important that we be praying for people that are lost. We think that our prayers do nothing, but understand that our prayers do much when we pray for those uh, 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 that, that we love. It's important that we do it. We see that, that that played a part in this. And so Lot went up out of Zoar, or went up out of Zoar, and dwelt in the mountain, and his two daughters were with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar, and he dwelt in a cave, he and his uh, two daughters. I'm sure the smell of the fumes of Sodom reached their way to Zoar, and Lot thought, you know, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> you know, maybe we should just leave and go, go live in the mountain in this whole thing. Um, now, this is amazing. Verse 31. It says, And the firstborn, the firstborn daughter of Lot, said unto the younger, Our father is old. And there is not a man in the earth to come in unto us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the seed of our father. Now what blows my mind about this is that these two girls just lost their mother, and they just lost their city, and they lost everything that could ever be dear to them. And the first thing that comes into their mind is this. That blows my mind. By the way, did you notice that Lot went into Sodom with much, and he came out of Sodom with nothing? That's always the case. He sleeps with his two daughters, and you see the condition of them. They were still princesses. 
don't ever think that the sexual nature of the society that we live in doesn't have an effect on the younger generation. Notice how permeated it has been even in the daughters of this man whom the Bible calls a righteous man. That the first thought that they have is who are we going to have children with? Let's lie with our father. That's, that's the most important thing in their, in their life because that was the most important thing in Sodom. That's what people lived for in Sodom. And thus it's what these two girls were living for even at the point when they lost their mother and their city. And so, and, and, and you know, this is such a bad idea that they know they have to get their, their, their stupid father drunk in order to even get him to go along with it. And so they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and laid with her father, and he perceived not when she laid down, nor when she arose. Now, that means he was either so sloppy drunk that he didn't even know what was going on, or he was such a drunk consistently in his life that he'd blown his mind to this point where that's just what happened when he drank. Either way, it's bad. Nothing <laughs> good in that life. <laughs> no, no. He's so drunk he doesn't even know uh, that he has just impregnated his daughter. And it came to pass on the, on the morrow, the next day, that the firstborn said unto the younger, Okay, I did it yesterday with my father. Let us make him drink wine this night also, and you go in. So that he's still hung over, and they say, Here, Dad, this will make you feel better. And they, they start bringing him right back down the road uh, there. And you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the seed of our father. Notice how skewed they justified this in their mind. That we have to do this. This is the righteous thing for us to do. And so they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and laid with him, and he perceived not when she laid down, nor when she arose. Thus, talk about fetal alcohol syndrome. Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. And the firstborn bare a son, and called his name Moab, the same as the father of the Moabites unto this day. So when you read about the Moabites throughout the rest of the Old Testament, now you know where they came from. And the younger, she also bare a son, and called his name Ben-Ami, and the same is the father of the children of Ammon unto this day. So when you read about the Ammonites now, from this point forward in the Bible, you know who the sons of Ammon are. Now what's amazing to me is that when you read the genealogy of Jesus Christ, you'll see that Ruth the Moabitess, who was the great-grandmother of King David, was included in that genealogy. God... God wasn't ashamed even to cast off, or ashamed of these people to cast them off, that he would even redeem them. But we see um, in the conclusion of the story that we never see Lot again on the pages of the Old Testament. His testimony to the world ends here. He's drunk in a cave, and he just impregnated his two daughters. That's a very sad ending for someone who started with such great potential. Lot's life for you and I becomes a testimony of what can happen in the life of a believer who puts God behind him and constantly chooses his own will first. God, what's best for me from my perspective rather than God, what's best for me from your perspective? And it's a world of difference where those two roads lead. And we see it in Lot's life. His testimony to the world is that he was saved but that he was a total failure in his life due to the choices that he made. May God give us wisdom to see 
the contrast that's laid out before us right here. These guys looked exactly the same on the outside for the first 10 years of their walk with God. There was no difference. You couldn't, you'd look at Abraham, and you would look at Lot, and you would say, that's a Christian, that's a Christian. That one left all, that one left all. That one's been blessed by God, that one's been blessed by God. That one's wealthy, that one's wealthy. You would look at those two lives, and you would not be able to discern any bit of difference. But underneath the surface, in the heart, where work is done and where truth is, 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 is known and is, they were two completely different men. One was surrendered to God and wanted God's will, and the other one was using God and wanted his own will. And the outcome is a world of difference. So may God give us wisdom as we let the depressiveness of Lot's life speak to us. Amen? Thank <laughs> you.